0: Hello, and welcome to a new episode of From the Honeycomb, a podcast that creates a spark of positive energy. Here we discuss all things architecture and design, to travel, exploring Vastu Shastra with a modern approach, and I connect with other like-minded women to share their story. I am your host, Katerina Burianova, and welcome to From the Honeycomb. I am joined today by Alana Minch, a scientist and PhD candidate at the University of Massachusetts Dartmouth School for Marine Science and Technology, where she studies how using stable isotope can help improve the understanding of stock structure of the Atlantic bluefin tuna. Alana also promotes sustainability and shares her knowledge of the ocean through educating people like me through her Instagram account, Ocean Alana, which I want you to tell us everything about your studies for Atlantic bluefin tuna because I'm so excited to learn.
1: Yeah, definitely. So yeah, I'm Alana and you've covered all the bases. So yeah, I'm a scientist. I study Atlantic bluefin tuna. So I'm kind of right in the, in the forefront of both marine biology and fishery science, but also chemical oceanography. I work pretty heavily in both topics, so it's a cool field to be in.
0: Wow. You are the first on From the Honeycomb podcast to talk at all about science in the ocean, and oh, cool. so I'm super excited to have you on. Yeah, very exciting. And as you know, we begin every episode by sharing something that we are grateful for. So what are you grateful for in the present moment?
1: Yeah, so my cat has had some health issues recently. The past Mm -hmm. couple of months, we had a couple things come up that have been kind of like scary for both of us. And um, but he's still around and he has like been able to bounce back from both of those issues. And so I'm really glad that he's still here and hopefully can, you know, continue to recover and you know, hopefully I'll have him for a long time.
0: Oh, and what kind of cat is he?
1: He is a black cat that I found at a Walgreens parking lot. <laughs> oh
0: my gosh! Oh, how sweet! Yeah,
1: Douglas, so, shout out to Douglas.
0: Uh oh, shout out to Douglas, and sending lots of positive energy towards for him. So, at the beginning, we kind of covered all that you're studying. So, tell us and tell the listeners, you know, what inspired you to study you know atlantic bluefin tuna and then also just to get you into this field because you're at phd level now so we know you've got some background behind you
1: yeah so i um did my undergrad at the university of miami i did a double major in marine science and biology and a double minor in chemistry and psychology and then while i was there A professor of mine uh, suggested I started doing some basically like undergrad research. And so I got connected with this NOAA lab. So NOAA is the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. So I started working for their Miami Southeast Fisheries Science Center office, doing just general plankton research. So I started out basically just like... Taking plankton samples, which is like anything small and floating, and picking out things like larval fish and larval cephalopods, squid and octopus, basically separating them from crustaceans and like other marine bugs. And that the point of that was just because those are kind of like commercially important species. And then once I graduated, I got hired by that NOAA lab. And the grant that I was on was specifically to do research for Atlantic bluefin tuna larvae in the Gulf of Mexico. So I went on a few oceanographic research cruises with that lab and just got really into bluefin tuna larvae. They're really cute. I like them. They're a really interesting species. They're highly migratory. They are the fastest, largest of all the tunas. They're just a really cool fish. So that's my favorite fish. If anybody else has a favorite fish, I just think they're. if you don't, definitely check them out. But yeah, the the thing about them is that they're also very popular for sushi. And because of that, there's a huge commercial demand for Atlantic bluefin tuna and the other two varieties, Pacific and Southern bluefin. So I work with the Atlantic species. So the Atlantic bluefin tuna historically has only been managed in two stocks, and that's the Eastern stock and the Western stock. So the Eastern stock spawns in the Mediterranean Sea and the Western stock spawns in the Gulf of Mexico. So that's what I was working on was the Western stock. Then flash forward to, you know, my year at NOAA coming to a close. There wasn't any more funding in the pool to keep me on. And so I was looking at grad programs. And because of my undergrad chemistry background, I found an advisor that basically gave me a really great deal, which was I can study whatever I want as long as there's some aspect of like chemistry incorporated into that, which is kind of a rare deal in PhD programs, so I already had a lot of knowledge about larval Atlantic bluefin, and kind of the cool thing was that there is, has been a, a novel spawning ground discovery that's not too far from Massachusetts where I'm located. And so I got involved with those scientists researching the, that spawning ground. And what I'm doing is I'm using chemistry to study those fish.
0: Wow, that's so interesting. And I now I remember how I found you is when you were out at sea doing your studies, I remember you were sharing your experience and somehow you came through my Instagram feed and I was like, this is, yeah, so this is really interesting. And I, you've also shared the little images of the little tuna larva, which is so microscopic and it's so interesting to see.
1: When I show them to other scientists who study like large fish or don't study fish at all, but they like, you know, are just kind of aware of fish and they're not really familiar with larval fish specifically. I show them what I'm working on and they're like, you can barely even see those like without a microscope, you know, like they're usually the ones I work on are somewhere between three to five millimeters. So you can see them, but they're really tiny and you might not really realize that they're a fish larvae.
0: And so how do you find them? So, fish larvae and
1: other plankton are pretty ubiquitous in the ocean. So, if you throw in, it's basically just like an all purpose kind of net with really small mesh, and we tow it at a speed that, like anything bigger, would outswim the net. Mm-hmm. But little small fish, like, you know, the larval fish and the larval cephalopods and little marine bugs and invertebrates, those will get caught because they can't outswim the net at that point. They're so tiny and slow moving. And so, basically, that's how we catch what's called plankton as opposed to the larger things.
0: Interesting. And like, how far out to sea do you have to go? Is it far? Oh,
1: no, you don't have to go far at all. I mean, you could probably do that just off any beach and still get things. This is, I mean, we do, to search for Atlantic bluefin tuna, we do go a little bit further offshore because usually where they're spawning is not going to be right coastally. But, um, yeah. If you wanted to just like look for any kind of plankton, you wouldn't have to go very far. I could go to your local beach.
0: Wow. So that's amazing. Like my beach is a mile and a half away and I don't like know much about it. So I live in California, Orange County, Pacific Oceans right there. And it's amazing. Like even from what we see snorkeling and just like spending the time at the beach. So that's true. Like I didn't think about it. It is so close. Like I could go study the plankton that that's so interesting. And I know you've also shared kind of like the little capsules and how you do your research. And so excuse my questions, because I know nothing about the world of research and and science. And so when you get your samples from the ocean and you then study them, what are you looking for?
1: It totally depends. I mean, there are so many branches of marine science. So like, I guess what I'm saying is not going to go for everybody. But for me specifically, when I'm looking at like a general plankton sample, what I'm looking for would be like larval fish and then IDing what species they are. So for commercially important species, like we're looking at tunas, we're looking at other like large recreational fish. So anything from marlins to things like that, mahi, What we're also people up north would be looking for would be like cod, lobster, larvae, things like that. So anything that can really inform um, how much spawning is going on to help management decisions for sustainability.
0: Hmm. And have you noticed different patterns throughout, like, obviously climate change? And I know you advocate, you have a lot of amazing information on your Instagram account. I was just looking through it recently just to kind of familiarize myself again. But talking about climate change, have you noticed, even in the last few years, significant changes in what you're finding? yeah so
1: i haven't done a lot of comparative plankton studies over the years usually when i'm doing plankton studies it's for a specific goal so what we're doing is to try to find you know where the bluefin are spawning or things like that so it's not so much year to year differences but i do know that a lot of the folks studying the adults especially because the adults do migrate so significantly different stocks of all kinds of different fish are all moving poleward. We are definitely seeing a forward migration of generally, you know, most species. And that's from fish to even invertebrates like lobsters and whatnot. The organisms that are going to be left behind are the ones that can't readily move or migrate like that. So things that are not modal, like corals and other things that can't make that kind of track.
0: Hmm. Interesting. You triggered another question and now I forgot it. There's <laughs> something about um lobsters, sustainability. Man, I had a question. And I totally blanked on it, but I was listening. Cuz I'm listening so intently to what you're saying because this is like No, I totally get oh, it. Oh. Yeah. I know. So you said stock. Stock is a group of fish. Yes. Okay. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> That's uh, okay. Stock is a group
1: of fish. Usually it's kind of referred to in the management sense. So fish that will be viewed as a group for any range of reasons, whether it's like a whole population or subgroups of a population that basically the, the scientists can refer to, to make management decisions about that group.
0: Interesting. Okay. And then now I remember what the word I was looking for is. So in my intro to you, I, I kind of took this from your one of your posts about how you were presenting at, it was a summit, I believe?
1: Yeah, ASLO recently. Yes.
0: By the way, congratulations. Yeah. But that sounded really oh, exciting.
1: Yeah. It was really great. Yeah.
0: That's good. And it was great seeing you said, was it like five of the seven women? Or presenters or five of the seven presentees? Oh, yeah. We had
1: a great, you know, marine science actually, as far as the science fields go, is really great as far as like women being top of the field. And a lot of there's a high prevalence of women in marine science, which is great.
0: Wow. I had no idea. That was yeah. really interesting to see, too. And I, so in that post, I know you, so here, where I talk about in the intro, you, how you're studying how using stable isotype analysis can help improve your understanding. What is stable isotope analysis?
1: Yeah, so isotopes are just different compositions, basically, of the elements that anyone's familiar with. So, you know, you've got oxygen, and that's a a major component of H2O, so water. So, oxygen is defined as an element by the number of protons it has. So, that is how you know something's oxygen. What can differ is the number of neutrons in the nucleus. And so, when you have a different number of neutrons, that will change the overall mass of that specific oxygen. And when that happens, you can measure the differences. And so for my work, really what I'm doing is relying on the basic like chemical and physics that when you have evaporation occurring to a body of water, what's going to happen is that the heavier isotopes, so the heavier oxygen essentially, will be left behind in the seawater, where or the, any kind of water, I suppose. And the lighter oxygen is going to be evaporated into the atmosphere. So when you have more evaporation going on, you're going to have a more, more enriched isotope signal for the heavy isotope of oxygen. And so we can see that kind of being a fingerprint for areas that have a lot of evaporation. So areas that are also, usually it overlaps with higher temperature and higher salinity as well.
0: Hmm. Interesting. And then, so you use those studies then to see kind of the habits of the Atlantic bluefin tuna.
1: So basically, what I do is when we know an area is going to have a very unique, stable isotope signature of oxygen specifically. So for example, I know that the Mediterranean Sea compared to the Gulf of Mexico is much warmer. And the Gulf of Mexico compared to the New England shelf is much warmer. And so there's this understanding that they're all going to have different oxygen isotope enrichment levels. And so those signatures are going to differ between the water masses. And what I'm interested in is that fish and you know all fish species, but my Atlantic bluefin tuna larvae have ear bones called otoliths. And these ear bones are made of calcium carbonate, just like corals or shells or anything else. And these otoliths accrete using the seawater that the fish is living in. And so they'll have the same signature of the seawater, that oxygen isotope signature, which is really helpful for me because then I can determine where the fish has been, where it was born, where it has traveled to. I can use that like a geographic map of the fishes, you know, lifespan.
0: Wow, that's so interesting. I had no idea you could so it's like a little DNA kind of birthplace print. Yeah,
1: yeah, kind of like that. Yeah. I mean, so it's interesting because the same concept applies in people. So we drink fresh water. If you're getting your fresh water locally, you're drinking like tap water from your city or whatever, your teeth also will have that signature. So if you moved from the West Coast to the East Coast, it's very likely, for example, that your teeth would show that move over the course of your life. So it's a, yeah, you can apply it to all kinds of things.
0: That's so interesting. I used to live on the East Coast. I lived in New Hampshire for five years and then I moved to California when I was, yeah, when I was like 10, I moved to California. So I'm wondering.
1: Your teeth remember. (laughs)
0: that's crazy that's crazy that's so interesting and it shows up on teeth so it shows up on teeth for us and then in the fish
1: yeah and the fish just their ear bones just because they're calcium carbonate and the results for the fish are really like immediate so it's continuously growing and because calcium carbonate is not reactive it just stays forever so it's not gonna change over their lifetime once it's accreted in that ear bone it's set
0: interesting So the fish are born, and I know nothing about fish, how they migrate. So a lot of the fish then are born in like the Gulf of Mexico, warmer waters, and then they migrate?
1: Yeah. So what we're seeing generally is Atlantic bluefin tuna, they actually really, really like cold water. And that's because they're so big and their metabolic rate is so high. That they require a lot of oxygen to be able to breathe. And when you, as far as water temperatures go, oxygen can dissolve more readily in colder water. So you're going to have more oxygenated water where it's colder. They spend most of their lives in colder water in the North Atlantic. And then when they're ready to spawn, the larvae do better in warmer temperatures. And so they spend a very small amount of time, as little time really as possible to get the spawning, the broadcast spawning across to Basically, spawn those larvae in the most suitable habitat, but then they leave as quickly as possible to get back to a, a cooler area. So the larvae will stick around until they're, you know, in the juvenile phase. But then, once they're adults, they prefer to be in colder habitats.
0: Mm-hmm. I had no idea. I'm learning so much. Like I'm yeah. <laughs> learning so much
1: with my research. Kind of the question is, um, there was a, so there's a new spawning ground that was found in the North Atlantic here. And the question, is this a spawning ground that has been around for a long time? I think it has been. I think there's evidence that it has been at least utilized to some extent since at least like the 50s. But we don't know if the usage of that spawning site might be increasing with, for example, climate change. So if the Gulf of Mexico gets too warm for the bluefin to really want to be in, are they going to skip that migration down there and just spawn up here in the more northerly Atlantic?
0: Hmm. And how does that work? And I know I've seen some of your stuff about with commercial fisheries. They're starting to learn, I'm sure, or they know the patterns of these tuna. And so is your research helping it, like protect the fish as well?
1: Yeah. I mean, I would like for my research. The thing is, as a scientist doing like research, I don't have a whole lot of say in exactly how fisheries managers will use what I, I learn. But I am, I do hope that if it's a new spawning ground, maybe there would be things like limiting the amount of take in that area during spawning season, for example, just so that way spawning can occur uninhibited. So for the Western stock of Atlantic bluefin tuna, the biomass took a pretty big hit when you know fishing technology really took off through the 80s and 90s. And the eastern stock in the Mediterranean has done a really good job of bouncing back from that. But the western stock here in the U.S. hasn't done so well at bouncing back. And so we're not seeing super high levels of larvae moving into adulthood. And we're not totally sure why that is. And I'm hoping that if we can do maybe a little bit better of a job of promoting spawning, maybe we can increase some of that recruitment as well.
0: Oh, very interesting. And I know you were in Majorca recently. Was that pleasure or for studies? That was for the conference that I was at. Oh, that was, so that oh, was that's right. the Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: Yes. Yeah, so that was the Aslo conference. So Aslo is the Association for the Sciences of Limnology and Oceanography. And so it's not a super duper fish heavy conference. A lot of it is things like physics and chemistry and Limnology is the study of um, freshwater systems, so lakes and streams. It's a very broad topic conference, but it's really cool to go to because I get to be exposed to all kinds of different topics of study.
0: Absolutely. And then, because that brings me to another question is, do you have a team then that you work with? I know you've got your PhD candidacy, but then are you part of a, a team? I know you were at with NOAA.
1: Yeah, so this is, I mean, I've kind of assembled like a group of researchers, myself included, that all kind of have their own levels of expertise. And we're all kind of putting in those backgrounds to make this a successful project. So there's me who has, I'm kind of right in between biology and chemistry. My primary PhD advisor is um, an isotope chemist, technically a biogeochemist. He's a really smart guy and he does isotope work on just about everything. So when I've been working in the lab that I'm in now, we've done studies, everything from like coastal remediation projects to kelp carbon systems, to paleoclimatology. So really anything you can study with chemicals, he studies. And then my co-advisor does fisheries management science. So he's kind of the one that will study the stock structure and try to figure out how to best manage a species. And then I've got a few other people as well. So there's a guy who was the one that originally found the Slope sea larvae, and so we've been working together very closely. Yeah, I, there's a whole team of people that have, have contributed greatly.
0: That's interesting. And how do, you find, how do you find each other?
1: You know, marine science is a small field, and I guess I'll, I'll plug just in general, SCICOM. When I was an undergrad at NOAA, the NOAA ship that I was on, the Nancy Foster, was doing basically like highlights on all the contributing scientists. And so they did a little highlight on me. And for my undergrad thesis, I was studying cephalopods of the Eastern Caribbean. So in my lab, we ID'd fish larvae, but nobody had really ever ID'd from my lab cephalopod larvae. And so I kind of self-taught and tried to establish like a, I don't know, template for the rest of my lab mates to ID cephalopods. So that's what I was working on at the time. And the scientist that ended up being the one who found the Slope Sea larvae contacted me because he was also interested in IDing cephalopods, And so we started like a back and forth talking about what species we were finding in the Gulf of Mexico versus like the more Northern Atlantic and things like that. And it, it just so happened that he also was a bluefin person as well. So yeah, without that blog post, I don't know if we would have connected and I don't know if I'd be studying this right now.
0: Wow. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah. That's amazing. Like, yeah, how are you guys connected? And that made me think too is, is someone listening to this podcast episode with you about, you know, marine biology. You know, I've covered a lot about architecture and the different avenues you can take. But with marine biology, of course, there's thousands of avenues you can take. And so when you're in the early stages of studying for marine biology, do you kind of have an idea of what you're going to learn about or what your interest will be? Or do you kind of Like in architecture, we do a good thing to do is get a bunch of internships, kind of see what firm, what style of architecture fits your needs. How does that work in like marine biology towards figuring out what to study?
1: Yeah. So for me, as an undergrad, I started off with like extremely basic like biology courses. So it really is not that different from any other like bio or science major, you do well the same like core courses. So the biology, chemistry, things like that. There's a couple more specialized courses. So I started off with like a general marine science course where they kind of introduce lots of very broad concepts. So things applied to physics or to chemistry or to biology. I always kind of knew I was going to be more of a biology person that just like kind of where my interests are. I'm not good enough at math to be able to do the physics. I'm glad other people are, but I can't so I guess that kind of narrowed it down for me. As far as what to actually study, I kind of landed in a plankton lab by accident. And actually I I didn't think I was going to like plankton as much as I did. I'm really lucky that it just kind of worked out that way because I don't really know. I didn't, it's not like I had any one like urge to study any one thing in particular, I suppose. Um, you know, it's not like I was like, well, I really want to study sharks or whales. I know some people are, but I just thought kind of, Everything is, is interesting. And so to kind of be pushed into one direction and land kind of in the right place, it turns out that I love level fish. And so it worked out perfectly, but yeah, lots of people, I mean, don't have a real idea until they do an internship or they take a class on invertebrates and, you know, something like sea slugs they have never heard of before, but they find, and they're like, wow, this is so cool. I've heard a lot of things like that. People think that they're going to go into like study dolphins and they come out studying like jellyfish.
0: That's true. Yeah. I think I said when I think about it too, like if I was going to go study marine biology, like I love dolphins. So I'd probably pick yeah. one of those, like the top few favorites, and then just see what mm-hmm. comes up. But that's so interesting. Yeah. You that you found the plankton and that you, you know, accidentally were exposed to it. But I think that's kind of the path that then you were supposed to go on, and everything kind of just happened for a reason.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And so when did you know you wanted to be study like biology? Did you already know fairly young, like high school?
1: You know, so it's funny because everybody always tells me that they, you know, when I tell them I'm a marine biologist, they're like, oh, when I was a kid, I wanted to be a marine biologist. And it's funny because I didn't didn't have that experience as a child. I think when I was like a a young kid, what I really wanted to be was a Zamboni driver. So not even a little bit close to what I'm doing at all. And then I got to high school and I just really liked my biology class as a junior in high school. And then my senior year, I took an environmental science elective. And I think I just kind of liked how that was a little bit more applied to the earth and ecosystems. So when I went to college, I knew I wanted to do something biology related and probably like very like environmental science oriented. Mm
0: -hmm. And then where are your studies going to take you next? Because I don't know where you are in your PhD program.
1: Yeah, I probably have about a year left in my PhD. So right now I am about to send my samples off for final analysis. And once I get those back, I'll just be writing all the results up. And I should be able to do that within the year, which is pretty crazy. So yeah, it's all coming together very fast. And hopefully I'll have updates soon.
0: That's super exciting. And then any plans after? I don't mean to like pry too much information. Yeah. You know, I,
1: there's a couple of things I've been thinking about. I don't have anything solid yet. I just kind of wanted to see where, you know, the results lead, because that could definitely change what I'd like to do. You know, if I come up with something that's really interesting and I want to study one specific thing more, it'll probably change where I land for a job. But yeah, I've been thinking about going back to NOAA. I really enjoyed working there. I think the only reason I stopped working there was just because of funding ran out uh, or, academia, being a professor somewhere, that would also be awesome.
0: Oh, for sure. You And you have a way of, I mean, I don't know many marine biology professors, but like the way you have explained everything to me, someone who knows very little about, about um, like science and marine biology is you really make everything so digestible, so understandable. And that's also one of the reasons. Yeah. One of the reasons I wanted to have you on to like talk and understand, you know, because like you said, you know, Atlantic bluefin tuna, it, where do I know it? I know it off a sushi menu. And then you don't think about there is, you know, more beyond that than, of course, when we consume it and then just what depths you can go into studying their behavior and their movements. And it must be such an interesting time too, especially in, seems like in history with just so much of the climate change and things changing that within our lifetimes, we're going to see so much of it. So there'll be so much for you to to be able to analyze.
1: Oh, totally. Yeah. I mean, it's such a, every time it's like, I kind of went into my thesis work being like, if I can answer these questions, that's going to tell us all we need to know, you know, about Bluefin to like inform management. And then as like, I get further and further into it, I'm like, what about this? What if I like study this next? There's just so many other other little pieces to the puzzle that especially as things continue to change, you know, we don't really know what direction is going to go. So yeah, the future is definitely very open at this point.
0: And are there opportunities for you to go like to other parts of the world and study? Or are you more like thinking US based? There are definitely
1: opportunities for that because I am focusing on Atlantic bluefin tuna. You know, obviously like the Western stock is a U.S. managed stock and also um, relevant to Canada. But, you know, pretty much this side of the Atlantic for for the Western stock, the Eastern stock. I actually was able to dabble in a little bit when I went over to Mallorca. So I connected with some scientists from a Spanish institute over there. And I actually am going to be analyzing some otoliths from bluefin larvae spawned in the Mediterranean Sea. And so that's really cool. So I could definitely see working over with the Atlantic bluefin tuna on that side of the planet as well. And then as far as other species go, there is the Pacific bluefin that is, you know, around Asia and then the Southern bluefin, which is a lot around Australia and those regions. So I haven't
0: really dabbled in those yet, but I'd be
1: curious as well to compare how the species differ.
0: No, for sure. That would be so so unique to see and see how they differ, even though they are still... I guess that made me think of another question. So they're tuna. What has defined and characterized them as tuna? Like You just late, you know talked about four different species of tuna, but what makes them tuna?
1: Okay. Yeah. So there's... I mean, there's tons of different kinds of tuna. Even outside of bluefin, some of the big ones that we have in the Atlantic that are commercially important would be like big eye and albacore and yellowfin, skipjack. Tuna are... A type of bony fish. They're a huge family. They're in the family Scomberdae and they're a, in the tuna realm within Scomberdae. They are almost entirely, I mean, they range from very, they're a very diverse group of fish, I'll say that. So they range from relatively small to the Atlantic bluefin tuna, which is hundreds of pounds. So they mostly, I believe, and I could be wrong about what classifies them as a group as a whole but usually it has to do with things like the skeletal structure or the the way that the organs are laid out, things like that, that are just differ compared to like other types of fish, like a parrotfish or a mahi or something like that. So it has to do a lot with like just the biology. But when you go from like the smaller trophic level, so lower on the food web tuna up to like Atlantic bluefin tuna, you also see a lot of changes in like things like Red muscle count or white muscle count, things like that, that can allow for shorter or longer migrations. You have tuna that are they live in warm waters. Atlantic bluefin tuna obviously prefer cold waters for the majority of their lifespan. Yeah, there's just a, a huge diverse array of different tunas. Hmm.
0: I have two follow-up questions. One is how many fish are in a stock? Like when these Atlantic bluefin fish are migrating, how many of them are there together?
1: Oh, this would be like huge numbers, like tens of thousands usually would get together for like a spawning event. Yeah, um, there's a lot of studies about this. So basically, it's what's called like a kinship study. And, you know, this can differ a lot. And there's still research ongoing about this. But basically, by using the larvae and the DNA from the larvae, we can try to extrapolate how many adults are in like a spawning cohort. And so if we, for example, have like 100 larvae and two are related, for example, like two are siblings or two are half siblings, then we can get an idea based on like the number of eggs like an adult would tend to spawn, how many adults there would be for that spawning group. And so that's an ongoing study at the moment. I think something was just published, but there's you know, still lots of questions to be had. But um, yeah, these are enormous groups of fish that would get together to spawn. Wow.
0: And then do they come close to the surface at all, enough that you could see them? Yeah.
1: Yeah. So there are times where they come up close to the surface. Um, They tend to travel with the currents, and so it really kind of depends, like, where the currents are. But, you know, they do pass through extremely shallow areas, like, for example, to get across the Gulf Stream into the Gulf of Mexico, they do pass through the Straits of Florida. So right next to the Florida Keys. And that is a pretty shallow channel that I know a lot of people see them through there when they do migrate through there. So they're definitely not impossible to spot, but they do tend to, the majority of their time, live offshore in deeper water.
0: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then another follow-up question to that is the migration journey. I mean, we talked about like it's from the Gulf of Mexico up towards the, like how long does that migration journey take?
1: You know, I actually don't know. I think I mean, they can get down there in under a month. So, yeah, I mean, I guess I because I work with the larvae, I don't have as much information about the adult behavioral patterns. But, yeah, I mean, they're there for in the Gulf of Mexico specifically. They're there over the course of about a month and the adults usually aren't going to stick around for like the whole month, but you'll have, you know, groups that come into the earlier side, groups that come in the later side, and they all pretty much get out and come back up to the North Atlantic to feed by the time July rolls around. So it's a pretty fast turnaround.
0: That is a really fast turnaround. And then more questions. I'm just, as I'm listening, I have more, is when the larva is like born, Excuse my knowledge. I'm coming from finding Nemo knowledge. Of course. Yeah. Do, the, do the fish leave the larva in like the coral where it's protected?
1: It's actually, so when you have reef fish, yeah, in some ways, yes. So certain reef fish will lay their eggs attached to a structure like a coral or something like that. Bluefin tuna are broadcast spawners. And so they basically just into the water generally, like the eggs tend to float. And so they do end up kind of at the surface floating around, but yeah, it's just kind of like into the open ocean. There's really no like substrate or, you know, it's just water when, you know, it's just a lot of open water.
0: Wow. And then how long from when they're larvae to when they become like what we would see as fish? Um, So
1: honestly you could recognize them as like kind of a fish within a matter of weeks. They'd still be tiny, but, um, I would say within like a month or two. So they they head off to the nursery grounds and they spend about their first year of life there. And so, yeah, I would say it wouldn't be difficult for you to recognize them as like a real fish, like, you know, about a month later, maybe.
0: Hmm. Wow. And then these nursery grounds. Yes. How do they know to go to these nursery grounds?
1: You know, I mean, somebody who has a better sense of what instinctually how fish know how to migrate would probably be able to answer this better than I would. Like I know, for example, turtles use like the earth's magnetic fields. I don't know that fish really do that. You know, they could, I'm not totally sure, but they, yeah, they, I mean, it's just an instinctual thing that they know to go to this one place. I don't know if it has to do with like, just an innate sense of following the current out of the Gulf of Mexico, for example. So where they end up is in the Sargasso Sea, which is um, coastal to basically like the Carolinas. And so it's still like generally warmish water, but, you know, there's more um, prey for them and they, they just kind of spend, you know, a year developing there. So, yeah, I mean, I'm I'm not entirely sure what kicks off the uh, that little migration for them, but somehow they know how to get there.
0: That always amazes me with nature. Like I watch nature documentaries and I'm like, these animals just know. And that's it's yeah. just so fascinating. Yeah. <laughs> Well, Alana, thank you so much for coming on from the Honeycomb Podcast. I hope my questions—I know, like some were like based off of Finding Nemo, and some were hopefully more intellectual. No,
1: Finding Nemo is a great movie; such a good movie.
0: Okay, good, good. Did you like Finding Dory?
1: Yes, I did. I—I I honestly, yes, I—I I like all those little like ocean animated. Moana is a great one as well. Not yeah. like quite as fishy oriented, but still a great movie. Yeah. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. And Shark Tale. I know I watched that one.
1: Oh yeah, when I was a kid, yeah, I seen that when I was a kid.
0: <laughs> well, anyway, thank you so much for coming on. This was super informative. I learned so much, and I have so much respect for like the research. I mean, the research you do too is—I don't know how now. How long have you been studying Atlantic bluefin tuna? So, oh, from the time I started
1: as an undergrad, that was like twenty sixteen. So like seven years now is when I've kind of like, that's how long I've kind of been like in the vicinity of Bluefin. i um, you know, doing my own research now, like totally focused on Bluefin research for the past, like two or three years specifically. But yeah, I mean, it def- I've been working on projects involving Bluefin for about seven years. Yeah.
0: That's amazing that to find some topic and to put so much time and research into it. And I'm sure you've only, you know, reached the surface of how much information you can learn.
1: Oh yeah, it's um, it's pretty incredible. They're a very mysterious fish, just because of you know their significant migrations, and we just don't see a ton of them when they're in the middle of the Atlantic. And the larvae, specifically, like you can't tag a larvae, so there's just a lot of mystery to them. So it's a really exciting kind of um, fish
0: to study. Absolutely. Well, thank you again for coming on from the Honeycomb Podcast. No, yeah, thanks for having me. Of course. And where can listeners find you?
1: So they can find me on Instagram at ocean_alana.
0: Perfect. I'll provide a link in the show notes. Thank you so much. And thank you so much for listening to this episode of From the Honeycomb Podcast. I would love if you left a review and rated the episode. You can click the follow button so you can stay up to date on the latest episodes. You can follow me on Instagram at From the Honeycomb Podcast. You can also support the podcast through the patron link in the show notes. Your support makes more of From the Honeycomb Podcast episodes possible. There's also my monthly newsletter, which you can subscribe to, that comes out once a month where I share a personal message with you. Also some intellectual architecture articles, a Vastu Shastra tip of the month, and we also have a book month. So that comes out every 7th of the month. Thank you so much and see you next Friday.